0: Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Uh, we've been studying the book of Romans. I'm going to be finishing tonight. I thought I was finished before. I know, I know. But uh, yeah, we, we, here we are. It's October 31st, All Hallows' Eve. We've been studying Romans and the reforming truths. Uh, going to consider uh, the, uh, the origin of uh, this, uh, what is sometimes called Reformation Day and what it is that happened 502 years ago. Uh, Here it is on the very day, on the very Sunday. It's 502 years after, not 500 years, but I thought before we leave Romans altogether, it'd be good for us to consider these things, uh, to to hear the story of how pivotal what I'm about to read to you has been in the world. Well, I'm going to start reading from uh, chapter 3 in verse 19, and I'll uh, continue down through verse 8 of chapter 4. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, No flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, He had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes, on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Let us pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would seal this blessedness upon our very hearts, even as so sadly Israel of old would not submit themselves to the righteousness of God, but sought to establish their own righteousness, as so many fell away from this perfect and beautiful righteousness revealed in the gospel of Jesus. So we pray that we who have received it should possess our possessions, should be the joyful and thankful Uh, uh, possessors of so great a salvation as we have freely received in our Lord Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. Now Let me tell you the story. It was All Hallows' Eve, or as we abbreviate it in our day, Halloween. Martin Luther knew that on the day coming, All Saints' Day, the students and the college faculty would be filing through the castle church doors for a special mass, and would, some, would, some would even be there to pay for the right to see some of the very famous relics of Frederick the Wise that would be on display on the occasion. Frederick was Luther's prince. He was simple and sincere in his Christian faith, although uh, he had imbibed many of the common superstitious ideas. Frederick had fallen for the superstition hook, line, and sinker, for he had one of the largest collections of relics in Europe and was growing by leaps and bounds. When his collection was cataloged in 1509, he had 5,005 relics. And just 10 years later, it had gone up to 19,000-plus relics, which, not to be too specific, he uh, had gotten... uh, uh, various things from all over the world, which had been calculated to remit more than 1,900,000 years of suffering in purgatory. Supposedly, by the way, including a p- included a piece of the burning bush, some soot from the fiery furnace, breast milk from Mary, a piece of Jesus' crib, and so on, thousands, thousands and thousands. Pilgrims throughout Europe would come and venerate this astonishing collection, for which the pilgrims would receive an indulgence, which would shorten their own time in purgatory for their trouble in pilgrimage. These pilgrims would be visiting for All Saints Day, and Luther's post on the door was ready for them. He hoped that some entering the doors would stop to read his troubled pastoral thoughts, On the problems with indulgences. He sought to correct some abuses. He had no idea what was about to break. This issue had been particularly important because there was a man named Johann Tetzel who'd been assigned to sell indulgences in his territory, in the territory right next to where Luther was a professor and a parish priest. Luther refused to allow Tetzel into his parish, and he told his people to stay away from Tetzel but they wouldn't listen. The people went from Luther's church across the river and started buying the indulgences. Uh, By the way, we have Tetzel's written sermons as well as his instructions to other priests working for him who were preaching the same message. Uh, Let me give you a, a sample. Do you not hear the voices of your dead parents and other people screaming in purgatory and saying, have pity on me, have pity on me, We are suffering severe punishments and pain from which you could rescue us with a few alms if only you would. Open, open your ears because the father is calling to the son, the mother to the daughter. Very vivid, no? Uh, briefly to explain, if you don't know the story or the, the background here, uh, purgatory and Roman Catholic teaching is the place where Christians go after death in order that they might suffer temporarily for their sins to be purified and ultimately to be made fit and perfected for heaven. An indulgence is a guarantee from the Roman Church that will release you or a loved one from the temporal penalty for sin. You could buy an indulgence for somebody who was captive in this Torment of Purgatory, suffering for his sins, and it would set him free from his suffering, or so the Pope had promised. Anyway, he had sent to Rome, uh, from Rome to Germany, rather this this preacher by the name of Johann Tetzel, and uh, this was intended to help to raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica in. Rome. Actually, as soon as Luther heard about the indulgences, he was very happy about them, and he thought that this would be a good spiritual development. But then he heard what was going on. He thought about it deeply. He searched the scriptures. He heard these words coming from Tetzel through the mouths of others, this man who was such a good salesman, traveling around Germany, telling people how terribly their dearly departed loved ones were agonizingly suffering in purgatory, and how the sale of indulgences would at last set their tortured loved ones free. Little history here. In thirteen forty-three, the sale of indulgences was endorsed by a decree of, of Rome. In fourteen seventy-six, it was decreed that indulgences could be granted for the dead to help uh, remit sin and, and release souls from purgatory. So. It, I I won't be able to get into the nuance. It is rather nuanced. You're actually purchasing prayer time from a priest to pray for your dead soul, for your relatives, so that the merit would be applied and taken from a treasury of merits and deposited into the person's account. If you didn't get that, um, well, you might have to read Pope Benedict's work. In time, uh, the time in purgatory would thus be reduced, is the point, by the amount of the indulgences that were purchased. Tetzel, I say, was an exceptionally successful salesman, a very vivid and, well, frankly, terrifying preaching style, but um, one that people found strangely captivating. In fact, he even had a little jingle that went along with it. It, it, it went like uh, this. "Vindas das Geld im Kasten klinkt, die Siel aus dem Feuer springt. Or in English, you didn't get that. When the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. It stayed in your mind. It played on your mind. More and more angered, uh, Luther did what was the normal thing for a university professor to do. He invited scholarly debate on the subject of indulgences. It was that day, then October 31th, 5th, 31th, 31st, Fifteen, seventeen. That uh, he he tacked up on the castle church door. Ninety-five statements in, in Latin. Uh, calling for a debate on these things, questioning the theology and practice of the selling of indulgences, he wanted a good debate. He called his post the Disputation of Martin Luther on the power and efficacy of indulgences. They have to understand disputations were were held every week. Uh, that they, they, we have we have hundreds, thousands of these uh, uh, disputations that were being held. This is what university professors of religion did. Uh, we know these as. Luther's 95 theses. These were hardly the only theses to go up, even of Luther's on the wall. But the thought of this little-known pastor and professor uh, would would soon be translated by his devoted students into German and then distributed throughout the hamlets of Germany and and cause enough of an uproar that even the pope himself took notice. I say Martin was not the first to post anything like this. Uh, Church doors were usually used to post announcements and became a kind of community bulletin board. Luther wasn't doing anything that had not been done a 100 times before. He certainly never imagined it would spark a revolution that's still ringing 502 years later. But these theses, again, in the hands of the people with this new invention, the printing press making distribution so widely available, they became tremendously exciting and there was interest. Luther had not been the only one to question the indulgences and how they were being sold. Many people throughout Europe had already complained about them, which explains why they spread so rapidly and found such support. In fact, even the document itself, thesis number 82, the the people ask, why does not the Pope empty purgatory on account of most holy charity and the great need of souls? The most righteous of causes, seeing that he redeems an infinite number of souls on account of sordid money given for the erection of a basilica, which is a most trivial cause. That is to say, look, if, 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 you could, if the Pope could get rid of souls in purgatory on account of charity, uh, would, 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 he, would he not do so? What, why is that connected with the erection of a basilica? such a trivial cause with respect to so many thousands and thousands of souls. And, and so, you see, over, overnight, purgatory and indulgences quickly came to symbolize all that, that was wrong in the Roman Catholic view, not only of doing business and so forth, but, but even salvation itself. That is to say, even though Tetzel's approach Is not allowed anymore by by Rome, and there's been uh, a a tremendous reformation in Rome as a result of these things. Indulgences are still available today to shorten your time in purgatory uh, when Pope Benedict, the 16th um, previous pope, uh, by the way, probably the best theologian Roman, Rome has ever had at the papacy, when, when he wrote his magisterial work on last things, the, the uh, Pope Benedict gave more pages to purgatory than, either to, than, than to heaven and hell combined. Okay? Heaven and hell were not as long as purgatory, uh, still a, a, a major area of theology and, and interest. For it makes sense if justification is thought in terms of a process of growth, as it is in Rome, purgatory and indulgences make sense because if you don't have this righteousness of Christ given to us, how could anyone be righteous enough for heaven unless, unless they have much more time to grow and be purified than this short life affords? At least that's what Ratzinger says, uh, Pope Benedict. So we come to the passage... And we, we see what Luther was wrestling with and why he uh, proclaimed another better hope. Luther calls this little section of Romans, by the way, I know it has a lot of technical words, a little thick to get through, but Luther calls it, quote, the chief point and the very central place of the epistle. Uh, this is the turning point of the letter, and not only of the letter, but for the whole human race. It describes how it is that a righteous God, who is a just judge, can be both just and the justifier, the inqu- the acquitter, the vindicator of one who believes in Jesus. It explains how you, sinful person, who you are, can be acquitted, justified, declared righteous by a just judge. Is that not interesting? This is what was behind... The wholesale and the, the 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 issues that were going on, but let me give it to you briefly here in uh, <clears throat> ten points, uh, ten important things from the passage. I, I I can't leave any of these out because they're also important and there's a lot of technical terms just stacked together. But but uh, let's let's go with it. First, we read here how God provides His righteousness, verse twenty-one. But now the righteousness of God is revealed. And with previous studies, you remember how this is righteousness imputed or accounted to us. Paul has shown us that there is no righteousness of our own, not Jews, not Greeks. No one can justify themselves in God's sight. Our righteousness rather being like filthy rags, says the prophet. God, therefore, must give us a righteousness, Joining us to Jesus Christ, and you remember the analogy given that it's like a husband and wife, that all of the debts, for example, of the poor woman are shared with the king of the kingdom, who is not only able to pay off her debts, but to elevate her to royalty. God joining himself to us in Jesus Christ, that all ours may be his, and all his may be ours. What do we pray this morning? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Though, he says, we have had no righteousness, God gives us his own righteousness, the very righteousness of God in Christ, uniting us to him. As we read earlier this morning in Philippians 3, to be found in Christ, not having our own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, through faith, Philippians 3. That's the first thing we're told. Second, in the same verse, verse 21, now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Not that this is some closely guarded secret. It's not something that was hidden from the world, but now surely in Jesus it has been revealed and it is commanded that it be published and proclaimed throughout the world. The message, though much opposed, that God has sent his Son to save his people, from their sins. It is revealed in Jesus. The law and the prophets, bearing witness into verse 21, this good news is not something that has just come into the world. It's not something new that Paul is teaching, not something he's dreamed up or invented, certainly nothing any reformer invented. For Paul goes on to prove his case in the passages that follow That Abraham believed God and it was accounted for him as righteousness. It's what David experienced. It's what the people of God of old have always hoped in. There's the testimony of many witnesses given, including the Psalms that we sung, so that we can know for certain that this is and will always be the hope of the world, the law and the prophets bearing witness, he says. Fourth, it comes to us through faith in Jesus. Even the righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus. We get very close to the heart of the matter now. What is required that someone may be able to stand before God righteous? Can we purchase it? Can we earn it? No, there is a righteousness that we simply cannot earn through our works, which have only brought us condemnation, but one that we must freely receive from God through faith in Jesus Christ, that he has done all the work. He is the righteous one. He suffered, we read, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. So that we read now, chapter 5, God justifies the ungodly. He justifies, uh, the opposite of condemns uh, in biblical language, he justifies the ungodly. To receive Christ and all that is his, we believe on Jesus Christ the Lord. Fifth, it is for all who believe. Through faith in Christ Jesus, verse 22, to all, on all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not just for the good people, for some rather than others. It's for all those who are in Christ. We've all fallen short. And he goes on and says really there's not the, the big division in the world is not religious and irreligious jew or gentile it's in Adam or in Christ as in Adam all die as in Christ all shall be made alive all who believe all who receive jesus receive the righteousness of god in jesus christ it's to all it's on all who believe sixth it is the free gift of god's grace verse 24 being justified Freely, by his grace. It's not something that we can purchase, earn, or even pay back. God has done it not because of who we are. Indeed, Paul says, I was the chief of sinners. But because of who he is. That God has made Christ's righteousness the free gift of his grace. It must be free. It must be given. It must be received by faith. And faith alone. And in this way, God has glorified his grace, the free gift of God's grace. Seventh, it comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's free to us, but it was hardly free. It wasn't free to God. The word redemption means bought at a price, bought back at a price. Our justification, our righteousness has come at a very great price. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him that Christ has suffered the Lord for the servant. God can't simply forgive you, you see. What would you think about any judge who said, uh, uh, you're guilty, but I'll let you go, right? We have riots in the streets in this country over such things, and and rightly so. The God who said, let there be light, could not just say, let there be forgiveness, because he would not be just he would compromise his justice, which God cannot do. It is at the cross where God's love and God's justice must kiss in order that both may be exalted. Grace freely given, justice fully served. God created the world through such a beautiful process, but he recreated the world through a horrible process, that is, through the cross. Old Puritan Thomas Goodwin put it very homely, where he said, Christ died to make his enemies his friends, even though he could have created new ones cheaper. It cost him nothing to make the world, to make everything in it, but God so loved this world, he gave his only begotten son. And therefore, verse 25, the price was the propitiation of his blood. I realize the NIV has sacrificed for atonement, if some of you are reading that. Uh, not exactly the same thing. It's getting along the way. Um, propitiation isn't a word commonly used now in English. To propitiate is to take away somebody's anger. So when Barclays Bank a few years ago cheated people out of millions, the CEO was sacked. right? This was the only way to assuage public outrage. Somebody's head had to roll at Barclays. A terrible thing was done and the firing of the CEO propitiated the people. I mean, there was still a price to be paid, uh, which is called expiation, by the way, but, uh, but to satisfy the anger at the injustice that was done, the just anger, it was necessary that Barclays Bank CEO be sacked. Well. This is where Christianity is so radically different from other religions. Everyone intuitively understands the idea of the justice of God, but nobody had any idea that God would come and satisfy that justice, that would, he would, he would uh, take away that guilt and make satisfaction paying it himself. The price of propitiation, it says, was the blood of Jesus. Number nine, his blood has covered sins in the past as well as the future. Again, uh 20, 25 here. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. You might say, what about all the people that came before Jesus? How were they saved? Answer, they were saved by the cross of Christ. Verse 25, God had passed over their sins that had previously been committed, it's true, but now at last he has demonstrated his justice for he has laid all their sins and all our sins on Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the sins that you have committed, the sins that you are committing right now, I see some of you, the sins that you will commit, the sins that generations to come will commit. These sins... Have been laid upon the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anything, by the way, you want to do to add to that? We know that we should live better than we do and we should serve the Lord more faithfully. We know that we should love Him more deeply and obey Him more eagerly. But Paul reminds us that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are covered over by the blood of Christ. Every sin you will commit tomorrow is a forgiven sin, a sin that is under the blood. When we say, forgive us our debts, we are not saying, what, saying that to a judge but to a father, not one that is dispensing justice, but in order to reconcile a relationship. Uh, Very important point here, Paul speaking in terms of the justice of God, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 1. Well, finally, number 10, this is all demonstrating God's justice. Uh, The fact that God had not condemned men to torment previously, and all the saints of old for their sins, that may have made God seem unjust. We we sing the psalm, and we say, well, how could David know the forgiveness of sins? Jesus hadn't come. But on this side of the cross, we clearly see that the payment has been more than sufficient, and that God believes in justice so much. He cannot just let it pass by. He is just, The judge of all the earth must do right. He would rather suffer himself than be an unjust God. Jesus is not, therefore, just the way to God, which is true enough. He is the way God has made to us. He remains just and now is the justifier of everyone who believes into Jesus, he says. And this, then, is the shocking announcement of God's good news as he puts it in chapter 5, verse 6. When we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10. When we were enemies, we were reconciled through the death of his Son. What's the conclusion? Paul goes on to say in verse 27. Where is boasting then? This is what must make us humble, to lower our pride. What have you deserved? What have you been given freely? This this passage reminds us of our great sinfulness against God and that he has freely forgiven us all our sins in Jesus. It reminds us that we need a great forgiveness and it assures us of a very great forgiveness that has come, despite all that we've done. Grace, greater than all of our sins, he says in the next chapter. This speaks beautiful words of peace and comfort, that despite all of the sins that we will even yet commit to our shame, he loved us when we didn't love him at all, when we were enemies. And the gospel fills us with humble thankfulness. Charles Spurgeon, in his book, All of Grace, tells a story about an artist He was painting a picture of a part of the city where he lived, and for historic purposes, he wanted to include in his picture certain well-known characters in the town. There was a street sweeper whom he wanted to include, unkept. He was ragged, filthy, known to everyone there. And uh, the artist found the man and told him that he would like to pay him if he would come down to the studio so that he could paint him. Well, the man arrived at the studio the next day, uh, and the artist sent him away. The man had washed his face, combed his hair, and put on a suit of clean clothes. The artist needed him as a poor beggar, and he was not invited in any other capacity. Spurgeon applies it by saying, even so, God invites sinners to come at once for salvation, to come as they are, to come freely, to come in disorder and confusion despair, filthy, naked, and dirty. Come with all of your sin to Jesus, who is crucified for sinners Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He's come to justify the ungodly. And if you are the ungodly, then you're the very one that he's come for. This is the best news in the world God has freely given. The ungodly sinner. One who cannot earn it. The free and full salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, I say we, we have uh, a great deal to rejoice in. In our text, Paul has answered the age-old question asked even in the book of Job, how can a person be right with God? One man even said if he could only have six verses out of the entire Bible, it would be Romans 3, 21 through 26. Um, Paul has forcefully driven home his point, laboring it for three chapters, that where, whether pagan Gentiles or even religious Jews, all alike are under sin. He hit them with their self-righteousness, knowing that they still felt superior to others. And we need to understand that this is welcome good news for all. Read somebody this week who said it doesn't take much of a man to become a Christian, but it does take all of him. That we, with all that we are, with all that we have, would welcome this good news and say we are the Lord's. Coming after this condemnation for three chapters, we come to verse 20 and we hear, but now, one of the greatest contrasts in the Bible. I ask you tonight, is there a but now in your life and experience? Once you and I realize that our salvation is based upon Christ, that he is the rock in which we stand, that our hearts are filled not merely with humility, but as Paul goes on to say, with assurance and hope and peace and joy and supremely love, that being filled with his Holy Spirit, that we could no longer... Live as we as we could, but having the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit given to us, as we said this morning, we could never, ever live anything like the same life again. This is the love that has been lavished upon you and me, a love that has, in the words of the old hymn, met God's law's demands in Christ. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, greatly Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, said the prophet. He is lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Let us go down again and bow and pray and thank the Lord for so great a salvation in Jesus. Grant unto us, Lord, that we would be occupied with this great thought of heavenly justice and mercy. That we, being so humbled, might boast and yet so lifted up that we could not help to to rejoice with joy inexpressible. You have sought us when we were strangers, wandering from the fold of God. All we, like sheep, had gone astray. Every one of us turned to our own way. And you have laid on him the iniquity of us all. You have called us and found us and returned us to the shepherd and their overseer. O may such wondrous love have its intended effect upon every heart. May we no longer relate to you the same way ever again, or to anyone else ever again that same way, but may we participate in this divine nature and joy. Oh, that we could draw nearer to you. Draw us, and we will run after you, as it is written. We thank you for this love without beginning, which chose us before the foundation of the world, and now, having revealed it in the sight of the world, having made us sons and daughters, We confess again, Father, we are unworthy to come to this table tonight, and yet it is a table that is set for sinners. You have demonstrated your love. May he who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, who has made us kings and priests to our God and Father, to him be glory and dominion.